Welcome to Cinemakers. This is episode 41, Inception, directed by Christopher Nolan. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Chris Podcasts. And this is, so I was going to say something not nice, not super mean off the bat, but I think this is, aside from insomnia, maybe, I don't know if worst is the word, but my least favorite Christopher Nolan movie since following, aside from insomnia. There's a lot of qualifiers. <laughs> That's not a very strong thing. There's only been like four or five movies since then, but I like Memento more. I like The Prestige more. I like all three Batman movies more. You know, Dark Knight Rises we'll get to next week. But I like this one a lot. I still gave it four stars on Letterboxd. I just felt a little underwhelmed by it. And this was one that I was looking forward to going back to. And I was just like, there's some parts I was just like, huh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's by no means a bad movie, but I hear what you're saying. Like, the rest of his work is so strong, and this is very strong, but there's just something else about the rest of his films that I connect with more. That might be it. That's a, that, I think that's a better, nicer way of saying it. This was the one going back to I was the most worried about, to be honest. Like, this I'd seen once in theaters and once at home, and I was like, yeah, I like it, and there's a, I'm a big sci-fi fan, and there's a lot of big ideas, but I was worried that it was going to be a lot of work to watch. I knew I was going to like it, but I was actually very surprised about the rewatchability of it this time. Like, I guess the third or fourth time around, it's like rereading like a heavy book or something. I actually really enjoyed it this time around. And that's not to say it doesn't have its issues, but I was surprised. It kind of encapsulates a lot of the problems that I'm having in this mid-career Nolan block thus far, where too much, too big too long and a lot of what he's going for I think misses the mark but when it's good it's really good and when it's bad it's probably the most boring that I've seen Nolan get from his own original works thus far. I do appreciate that this is a completely unique and new concept and that's rare these days even going back to when this came out Hollywood is devoid of unique ideas and the willingness to write a blank check for them to be created so you know I appreciate and am continually shocked by what Nolan has been able to do as a blockbuster filmmaker, but that said, this one misses the most marks as a whole for me. This is his first fully original movie, to piggyback off what you said, since following. Everything else has been an adaptation or something that somebody else has written, so that's cool and important to say here, because I think that is an important note here. What's also kind of crazy is that he first pitched this movie when he was working with Warner Brothers after he made Insomnia in 2002, and they were like, yes, we love it, let's make it. He was like, hold on, before I just go and make this movie, let me write the script of how I want to write it, like, sort of don't go too crazy with it, let me take my time on it. He's like, I'll just get it done sooner or whatever. It took him almost 10 years in total to write the entire thing. So Warner Brothers basically said in 2002, let's make it. it. came out eight years later in 2010. It was a long time coming. But I think it's better that it came out later because the stuff that works really well here, like the special effects and like the twisting hallway and the crazy city that folds in on itself, like that's all incredible. And I don't know if you could have really done that in 2002, 2003, 2004 if you did it like right after Insomnia. I don't know. Maybe it would have played better back then because like Chris says, I think this movie does does just take on too much like there's a lot of great almost every idea in here is like really great and like could service its own film but that's the problem it feels like multiple movies built off the same idea sort of like squished together and it's saying a lot but ultimately I feel like for me it's having a hard time like making its point completely but that is very interesting to know that he's been working on this for so long because it feels like his opus it feels like he's trying to say everything that he wants to say with this which is a little strange because it's not 
like he'll never make another movie again. Like, I feel like, calm down a little bit. But the things that work here are so cool and work so well. If only he maybe focused a little more on that and a little less on maybe the psychology or the psychoanalyzing himself a little bit in the center of this film. Like, it's interesting. It's just, I feel like it's for something for another time, like, to, to tackle. Like, in this, I just want some cool kick-ass dream sequences with people pulling off the mind heist and Leo barking orders and Tom Hardy kicking ass and just all kinds of the cool stuff. Like, I want more of that. Maybe in another 10 years, this would make a good TV show. I mean, this movie is long. And also, we're coming off about real negative about this. It's still a movie that I really, really like. But this movie is long. We can we can sort of blame it for being long. But it is the same length as Dark Knight, I think. It's like 20 minutes shorter than Dark Knight Rises. It's, I think, 20 or 30 minutes shorter than Interstellar. All of his movies are now long. But that's interesting to say just that it feels longer than those movies, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Maybe. I mean, that's very personal. I don't know if I can agree or disagree. It, feel, it does feel long. But what's also real, real weird is that this movie is two hours and 28 minutes long. The Edith Piaf song that they play to wake people up is two minutes and 28 seconds long. So that lines up exactly. And the craziest thing to me, and this can't just be coincidence, the Blu-ray length in seconds is 8,888. I don't know why, but that's not like a coincidence. I don't know the significance of that, but I feel like that is, yeah, that's totally Nolan, like, being cryptic. I, I wouldn't put it past him, but that's the other thing about this movie. Like, this feels, again, like he's doing a super personal movie on a very operatic scale, but he's still, I wouldn't put it past him to hide not only things on screen, but things in the running time, too. Maybe that's just something I don't know about Nolan. I've kind of zinged him for his inability to do much more than surface level, like, theme work, working themes into his stories. And this seems like an awful lot for him to just go, like, don't let the chains of the ghosts of your past weigh you down. Like, this seems like a whole big, like, shiny box for a very simple idea. And I think that's a lot of what doesn't work for me, is that nobody else has a really engrossing story in this film or an arc even other than arguably Ellen Page and then definitely uh, Cillian Murphy and Leonardo DiCaprio but Murphy is like he's not the antagonist I guess because it's it's Maul but we're not really since we're heisting him we don't really have any empathy towards him and DiCaprio's goes on so long and kind of repeats a lot of the same beats that it starts to feel dry and again it's arguable if Ellen Page even really has an arc here I just think that that as an emotional movie as we've talked about Nolan's emotional manipulation of the audience I think to DiCaprio sells a lot of it, and that saves some of the aspects of it, but that alone feels like such an outlier. It, it doesn't feel like a personal movie to me. I do like this movie a lot, but I do feel like there's a coldness to it, emotionally to a degree. Like, he's telling me I should be feeling this sort of love story between the man and the wife he lost and the way he incepted her mind and how that became tragic and I want to feel for this and like I feel like I should cry at the end and stuff but at this time around I guess I'm not there's something about a lack of clarity maybe where with something like Memento which is completely you know out of order or at least backwards I felt the emotional hit there very clearly so that to me is just something else that's getting sort of just maybe a little lost or at least like the attention spent to it is sort of in a as opposed to like sparsed out properly or set up in a way that is maybe more familiar because I also do feel like he is playing by his own rules here as far as like filmmaking goes like he is not following three-act structure or even scene structure or any of that kind of you know he's really going off the rails here and experimenting in other ways too so I think that might just add to a lack of clarity in some aspects. 
This movie feels like Nolan adapted a video game that doesn't exist. <laughs> this would be an awesome game, though. I mean, the snow stuff, which I think is the worst stuff in this movie by far, just screams of, like, the worst level of Goldeneye to me. The snow stuff, which is appropriate because it was Christopher Nolan based it on his favorite Bond movie on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Oh, that's funny. Okay. The sort of the Black Sheep Bond film. I mean, it only could have been worse from a, a Goldeneye perspective if he had been uh, guarding Cillian Murphy while he was hacking into a computer for nine minutes. That part to me did, did feel like Nolan really wants to do a Bond film. He's getting some of that out of his system with Batman, but it's cool to see him try and do some of it outside of that world. But it's just something about this. It's cool and everything, but by that point, especially in this movie, the um, the impact is a little lost because I'm like overwhelmed, I think, a little bit at that point. I'm, I'm more concerned with Joseph Levitt spinning around in Zero-G Matrix style. Like that stuff is, is really cool to me. Um, and like that always feels important to me too. Like that feels like, oh no, if like Joseph Levitt doesn't get done what he's doing, like that feels necessary for some reason like that all the way that is I get the tension in those moments well you know going back to something you said before I do agree with you Mike that this does feel like Nolan's longest movie and I think a chunk of that is this is the movie where he loses the pacing here and that does come from really the structure of the film in and of itself with the layer on top of layer on top of new level and all of that stuff because there's in the Dark Knight Rises I think which also has some of Nolan's least interesting ideas the bad that stuff is spread out a little bit more. It's like dumb stuff surrounded by good stuff, but in small bursts. Here, it's like a whole chunk of the movie that is the worst stuff, and it's immediately bookended by the hotel, which is maybe not even arguably, I, I think it's just from the imagery that's repeated of this movie, probably the best part of it, other than Ellen Page manipulating the world, and the really core emotional stuff right after that. And there's just such a large chunk of this movie that feels like it is circling the drain, either the emotional aspects or the action aspects, and it doesn't do either as well as stuff that's right next to it. And it does make this movie feel like it is slipping for a longer period of time. I sort of wish that I had like a clock that said how much time we spent in each level. Like I know it's not true, but I almost wonder if like we spend more time in the snow level because time moves slower there. You know what I mean? I wonder if there's something about the way that they structure the film and structure the narrative and the time spent on each layer because as they explain in the movie, like each layer you go down, it feels like you're there longer. So like a 10-hour nap or like a night's sleep, a 10-hour night's sleep like that flight, if you go all the way down the limbo is like 50 years. And so I wonder if there's more time spent in the snow level or not, but it feels like that's not true. It just maybe it just isn't as good. Like maybe the maybe the answer is that simple. Yeah, I wonder about that too. That would be interesting if he got all mathematic with it in that way as well somehow but I'll tell you what I do like is the way the different levels or at least like the way that he cuts between the different levels is represented because it's he's using slow motion and he's using it to sort of describe that when you go between different dream levels like that's the only time he uses slow-mo in here is to say that he's not I mean it looks cool as hell too don't get me wrong but like the whole idea of show, of cutting back to them in the van in slow motion like those shots aren't exactly cool, but they're necessary because they're important to say, like, yeah, time has slowed down, or they are experiencing time differently on this level than they are while they're running around, you know, in a hotel lobby, or even further down. I wish they maybe did one extra thing further down to show, 
like how much faster they're moving in the snow level or something. But I do at least like that, that he sort of stuck to that rule. Don't use it for cool effect. Use it for impact and, you know, use it for as a filmmaking tool. Weirdly, like when I was watching this movie, like I've, I've taken a lot of notes on a lot of these movies. But for the most part with these movies that I've seen where I feel like I've seen a lot, like I don't know if I'd seen this more than just once, but I feel like I'd sort of been like, I knew how to talk about them. Like we'd all seen them a bunch or no, we were able to compare it. And like this movie, for some reason, I didn't take a lot of notes during it. I don't know if I was like just engrossed in it or bored by it or like alternating because the plot is relatively simple. So I don't know what it means to like, like it's told in a complicated way, which I guess is true of a lot of Christopher Nolan movies. And I think there's like 220 something cuts between different dreams. So like every time on IMDb that they have like a one of those kind of little factoids, I always like to drop that in there because, you know, like in following or memento where you're shifting timelines or the prestige where you're shifting timelines, like he's again cutting back and forth between a lot of things. And it can be confusing if you don't really know what's going on, but I think that's all laid out pretty simply for you to understand like it's this layer, then this layer, then this layer. And the plot itself is kind of simple. Did you guys take a lot of notes, at least in comparison to like the other movies that we've been talking about on this? Nope. I also don't agree with you that this is a simple plot. So let's talk about that, because I think at its core, what's not simple about it is that everything, like the technology and the ideas in this are made up. That there, you don't have like a reality to base these upon, where we are now in a world in which you are able to enter dreams to either retain information, gather information, steal like a heist movie of a brain, or which we find out at the end, like only maybe the second time that Cobb, Leonardo DiCaprio has ever done this, you can incept an idea into a brain, you can plant an idea that they think is their own and then it sort of manifests itself in the real world in in one way or another. And I think once you understand that, I think the idea of we want to go in this guy's brain so that he can sell his father's company or disband his father's company so this other competitor profits. Like, I think that core idea is super simple. I think it's just a matter of tuning yourself into the narrative structure of the world, like the rules of the world, the laws of the world in which this technology is possible. I think once you know that, I think the plot is very simple. Sure. And you have to give to Nolan here. In the in the hands of a less meticulous, maybe is the right word, screenwriter and then editor, uh, whoever edited this, good on you, that I think this movie would have been an absolute mess. Just complete nightmare, incomprehensible, fever dream, Gilliam-esque even. Instead, we just unfortunately, and again, this is kind of what kneecaps the pacing for me as well, we have not one, but two audience stand-in surrogates. Even though Killy Murphy, I, I'm gonna go back and forth on how the hell you say his first name over and over again. I think it's just Cillian. Yeah, I think so too. He acts as a stand-in at times, with people having to explain plot concepts to him, but then Ellen Page is that for the first 45 minutes of the movie. So that is something where I think it's kind of hard when you don't have a direct surrogate for your own eyes and your own comprehension of the world that's consistent. It just breaks the pacing when they're still doing that, bordering on, like, the hour and a half mark. Yeah, you could argue even before that in the opening, like, we are Saito. Like, Cobb is, like, pitching him this whole idea of dreams and ideas and all how they manifest and everything. And I kind of feel like that's Christopher Nolan talking to us, too. Like, give me a minute. Just wait. Like, give me a chance. <laughs> like, I'm trying to explain myself what's about to happen. But that's the thing. Like, I just feel like there's just lots to explain going on. Like, lots of this movie is just explaining stuff, which a lot of it is cool because, you know, it's all the dream stuff, like Ellen Page building stuff in the dream or when he goes to the chemist or when they're talking about the kick and just, like, all these little things and then, like, the totems and, you know, limbo. Like, there's all this really rich stuff to discover here. And that's why I said earlier, maybe 
maybe a TV show nowadays would be a really cool way to sort of explore this world because I want, I almost want more than just a heist film out of this universe. And we, we get a heist film ultimately, like he wraps this all around that genre. But even those are tricky. Like we, we've covered in Soderbergh, like the Oceans films, you know, and like those are such a tricky sort of balancing act. Um, and he really pulls those off. And I feel like here, maybe this isn't quite his strength. Just all these elements together might just be a bit overloaded. I want to play a game with you guys. I don't know if this number is right. I'm just taking it as IMDb gospel. In this movie, which is 148 minutes long, how many questions do you think characters ask? <laughs> Who the fuck counted that? 148. I went one a minute. 148? There's too many scenes of shooting and punching, so 148. I'm going to go with 94. Higher than both. Wow. Holy crazy. I was sticking with like a joke answer no, too. I was like, I'm No, but guess, guess again. Guess again. Because oh, okay. this is the actual answer. You won't believe it. You won't believe how many questions are in this one film. All right. I mean, is, is there dialogue that's not a question? I don't know. I mean, this is also including what they call tag questions, which is apparently like subconscious is motivated by emotion, right? Which is still a question, but not necessarily a question seeking an answer, like a impression of that. But anyway, how many questions do you think, including those kind of questions, are asked in this movie? I'm going to say 236. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to say fuck it and like almost triple it and say 450. 399. Holy shit. That's ludicrous. Cobb leads all characters with 113, followed by Ariadne, 93, and then Arthur, 44. So like half of the questions, more than half the questions, come from Leonardo DiCaprio and Ellen Page alone. Because it feels like every time to explain things to characters, like to explain things to Slean Murphy, he's asking questions like, do you really think that like, blah, 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 like, do you think I'd be down here? Do you think, like, do you know who I am? All sorts of stuff. And they're not all explaining the plot, but I feel like a lot of them are, in a way, explaining what's going on or why we're here or what's happening or who these people are. And that's a lot of questions. That's a lot of questions. I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of interesting because it makes everything seem interesting, I guess, because if he's like, you never know how we got to a dream. How did we get here? Like, what if I could tell you this like imagine that you know and it sort of like opens up your mind to wonder yeah like my imagination is going now it's going like I'm buying the spectacle but then when there's like 400 questions when every line is like that it sort of loses its luster after a while and you just start to be like and I think the audience at a point too I think a major not a major but I think one criticism of this film was too many questions right like we needed more answers funny enough the one sort of solid explanation we do get is just like thrown away by Joseph Gordon-Levitt and it's about the dream tech itself when he's like oh, yeah the dream tech was developed by the government so soldiers could stab and kill each other in their dreams and understand how it felt so they could wake up and be better so it's like whoa 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 like let's do a movie about this now I mean yeah it is it's a bit crazy you know it's a weird thing that I didn't think about until I read the IMDb trivia which either means I don't think it means that I'm dumb but I just think I mean like I didn't actually think about it but Cobb never uses his own totem he just uses Mal's totem so you never know if he's awake or asleep, which is weird. I mean, he uses it to gauge himself, or maybe I guess conceivably, in this world, and we never get the actual satisfaction of an answer, is that the whole point of the totem is to see if you're awake or asleep, but nobody else can know it, because if somebody else knows it, and ostensibly you're in their dream, they can recreate the totem, and you can be satisfied with your answer, even though it's not true. So maybe in this world, once Mal dies, he's able to use her totem, because he's still the only person who's alive who knows the actual weight and the mechanics of it, but it's just strange that we don't actually see his own totem. Like, I know that he's obsessive over his wife's death for a whole bunch of reasons, the not the least of which is that he incepted the idea into her brain 
that led her to kill herself. But I just found it weird that the totem is such a key element, especially his totem, which ends the movie, and it's not even his, it's hers. Did you not read any of, like, the 10,000 stink pieces when this movie came out about how Cobb's wedding ring is actually his totem? There's a whole fan theory that his totem is his wedding ring because he's wearing it in some scenes and not others. The top isn't it, blah, blah, blah. I don't really care because I don't think the ending, whether he's in the dream or not, really matters, and I think it's the wrong question that everybody's asking. But, I mean, that might be a genuine answer if he really is wearing it in some scenes and not others. I don't know. You can probably Google wedding ring inception theory very easily and read a whole bunch of trash. Yeah, I also heard that there's like a lot of people just think that this entire movie is his dream. Like he just, he has never woken up from limbo or whatever. Like I don't like that reading personally. I don't like that. I like the ambiguous ending too. Like I like the debate about the ending and stuff, but like it is kind of interesting you say that because I also believe like Saito spins the top in the opening of the movie in the castle. But I, I think Cobb, like him touching her totem in the first place was what gave her the idea because you know like he actually maybe like that's the thing like he corrupted her piece and now he has to keep it and something and like that's why no one else can ever touch each other's things but that's funny like of all the things going on in this movie that's the one thing that never occurred to me that it wasn't personally his totem to begin with but I do love that idea, like the whole thing that like if you do this too much, you could lose a grasp of reality. And then we see that with sort of the people in that guy's basement, uh, the chemist's basement, where they're like, they dream for 40 hours a day. It's like now they live in reverse. They like they dream most of their day. And then when they're in their waking life, it's sort of like, you know, how much time we spend dreaming it's all backwards. Now that we're talking about this, I might be on the same wavelength as Mike here in regards to this. One day being remade as, like, prestige TV might not be a terrible thing because I really like the stuff between Mal, played wonderfully by Marion Cotillard, and Cobb. Their stuff is fantastic, but it doesn't belong in a movie about shooting guns and driving cars into things. And I really love the action in this movie. And it doesn't jive as well with the emotional kind of level and the ironic tragedy that occurs between the two of them. So there's kind of like how I feel about the person there's so many more interesting ideas that this universe could explore and what we get is just kind of like eh, okay good start but this just think about how much more how much deeper we could go here and I'd love to see both of those things explored in depth and separate because I think they drag each other down I don't think the balance is there and that shows the most in scenes where like they just take time out from the middle of the shit like to have Ellen Page go in there and it, it just like I like those scenes it just seems to be the thing that's trying to connect the two threads and it never it never works it never feels like it's all flowing together in a way that can bring you between the two and still make you feel and still make you be on the edge of your seat and still make you have emotion and still make you care if someone got shot. Yeah, I was actually quite surprised that Michael Caine didn't play a bigger role when I was first watching this, that he wasn't part of the team, actually, that they didn't have, like, a psychiatrist or a psychoanalyst on their squad, you know, to make sure that their minds are sort of safe to share in the first place and stuff, because, I mean, Joseph Gordon-Levitt seems to be aware of Maul and, like, who she is and what she represents and everything, but ultimately, like, I don't know the rest of his deal. Like, he doesn't seem too concerned that she's going to, like, jeopardize their mission, but then when Ellen Page, like, goes into memories. Well, they're dreams, but they're constructed from memories. So, like, you really come to figure out that he has some 
deep-rooted psychological issues to trying to keep her alive. That's really cool stuff. I agree. But yeah, it's just, I'm not, I'm having a hard time switching between the two because they're both sort of so deep, you know, they're like, they each do deserve, they really do deserve sort of their own time, but they are cool. So that that's the kicker is like, uh, I think that's why ultimately I do like this movie and I would recommend it. Because I don't remember if I said it on this episode or I was just telling Chris about it when I saw him on Saturday in person because we hang out in real life too, believe it or not. But I was like, when this movie works, like it's almost better than any other movie. Like there's stuff here that is so ridiculously good and so amazing to watch that like when this movie works, like you're saying, like it soars, like it's so good. It's just that it does get bogged down from time to time. And I don't know, maybe you need like a second movie where you already have more of the rules of the universe established. Like, maybe the Purge comparison that Chris made is good, that the Purge didn't get good till the third movie, and then apparently the fourth one's good, and now they're making a limited-run TV show. Like, that universe is being expanded. The problem here is that the visions are so grandiose, and the technology needed to make the movie is so complex, and it feels like he doesn't have any interest in making a sequel that I don't know we're ever going to get it. But I do think that if we had an Inception 2, or a 3, or Inception of TV series, that it probably would be better or more digestible because you're able to break that up, or get to a point where like we understand the rules of the world and can just sort of live in this world where Ellen Page can do crazy things with her mind. A question I have for you guys, I can only answer this from my vague memory of it, but another heist movie that a lot of people probably remember with a big cast is the Oceans franchise, see previous season, and eliminating 12, because my best memories are of Oceans 12 and Oceans 11, and 12, I think, just kind of sucked and didn't do a lot well. No, well, you're wrong, but that's okay. Okay. I think, focusing on 11, I think they gave everybody something kind of unique to do, and everybody played a unique role. I didn't really feel like that happened here. Yeah. I felt like... Other than the quote-unquote chemist and the quote-unquote architect, this was what happens when you have a D&D party and you only have rogues and mages. You just die real quick because you forgot to bring a healer in a tank. It just seems like everyone's kind of doing the same thing and it's just shooting guns and punching faces. Well, that's what's weird because like they're all recruited because they have different skills. And then I agree with you that like they all just like, aside from Ellen Page who's making the world and they're making the chemical compound to knock people out, they're all just doing things. And it seems like Joseph Gordon-Levitt's thing is like, he's the one who does the kick, but, like, everybody can do the kick. Like, it just, it's weird that they're all brought in to have a special set of skills, and then, like, essentially, and it's not exactly this, but, like, in the Fast and Furious movies, go check out Too Fast, Too Forever, they all sort of had their own specialties, but now they're all, like, excellent marksmen, and, like, computer hackers, and great fighters, and martial Yeah, exactly. Everybody sort of becomes that, but that's over a span of eight movies. I agree to a degree, like, I, especially about Joseph Gordon-Levitt, like, I'm, he just seems to be a Cobb mouthpiece, like, he's the voice of Cobb, like, walking around telling everybody, or telling Ellen Page actually more of what to do but like Tom Hardy is the uh, the forger you know like he impersonates that dude and we do have the chemist but part of me feels like what they need as far as like a body count for their team they need minds to jump into you know what I'm saying like they need extra bodies like on the team anyway so that they could just like go deeper levels and stuff like that because like first they go into the chemist's mind and then they go into Joseph Gordon-Levitt's mind then they actually go into Cillian Murphy's mind I think what what I wanted is them to use their special skills more often I guess that's what it's coming down to. It does feel like they're just sort of brushed over and then they become yeah, like just bang, bang, shoot them up like whenever we need to. We don't even get the one scene that's definitely missing from a movie like this is just like target practice. You know, teaching Ellen Page how to shoot. Even if it's like in a dream. Like how funny that would have been if Tom Hardy, you know, had like a big Gatling gun like because he pulls that one rocket launcher out and it's like the greatest line of the movie where he's like, dream bigger. And it plays so well. And so yeah, just goofing around a little more with their special skills could have definitely been cool. 
I take some offense to you calling Sergeant Barnes, a.k.a. The Substitute, a.k.a. Tom Berenger, that guy, because he rules. Yeah, I just meant as far as character name, but Tom Berenger, man. I was just watching um, Major League with my nephew, so that guy's been around for a while. <laughs> so I guess I bring this up. We haven't. I'm surprised we haven't really had time to talk about this yet, but what are your guys' take on the music of this movie? Because I know that is kind of polarizing to a lot of people, and it's definitely been sort of picked up and played out by this point. Well, the Edith Piaf song? Well, just like the blaring horns and the Hans Zimmer stuff, and like I guess the score. Oh. Oh, so what I forgot was, I knew this a long time ago and I forgot it, but the horns is just a very, 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 very slowed down version of that Eva Piaf song. No kidding. Okay. I thought it was like an alarm clock that they missed. No, it's it's the song that they hear. It essentially is an alarm clock because that's the song they hear to wake up. So it's like, okay, so it's as if they'd slowed it down for 10 years or something. Or That's amazing. Yes. Yeah. So I remember that a long time ago, but yeah. Yeah. It's the first thing you hear, right, when he wakes up on the beach. Yeah. And then I think the end, it's like played at like regular speed. Like when you're leaving the credits, like you're waking up from the movie or something like that. Oh, that's cool. And so it is, it's intentional. Like it's not just, I mean, it is a thing that people have played out and made fun of yeah that's crazy how it sort of got picked up and became like a trope afterwards and i don't know that many people are aware of that fact about it though because again that's like that's so nolan to me you know is like it's just indicative of the story and everything yeah it just works on multiple levels like this movie it's as overblown to me as J.J. Abrams and Lens Flare. Like, yes, it's it's there, but it's not as there as the internet wants to meme it out to be. It didn't bother me at all this time. I, I think it adds more than it takes away at any point in the movie. I think the problem ended up being people sort of adapting it or appropriating it for just any old movie. And, like, just the idea that it's actually, like, an actual piece of music slowed down is just... It works for this particular piece, yeah. So this movie won four Academy Awards, Best Cinematography, Sound Mixing, Sound Editing, Visual Effects, and it was nominated for Best Picture, Original Screenplay, Best Original Score, and Best Art Direction. Did not win those. What's of note here is, we're going to get to next week, is that The Dark Knight Rises got no Academy Awards. And so this one, you know, won four, nominated for another four, I think might be his one of his most, if not his most, decorated film. And then we go next week when we go to Dark Knight Rises two years later, gets nothing. So people love this movie. I think the Academy loved this movie. I think it's a technical marvel. I think that's, you know, worth pointing out that we are being, again, I keep saying this because I feel like we're being overly critical of it. I also feel like, you know, now that we're recording as these episodes are coming out, I've heard our first two episodes back and just like, oh, we need to be mean about certain things because we're going to be gushing about things the entire run. So I think it is important that we are critical where critical eyes are needed or merited or wanted or whatever. But this is a very technically well-done movie that was, for whatever they're worth, decorated at the uh, Academy Awards that year. Nice. Yeah, and I don't feel like we're trashing it either, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like you said, we're just talking about it critically this time around. Because some of the things, I mean, it's hard to explain, really, because some of its flaws are things that I also like about it. Like, I just like that he just swung for the fence. I love the idea that he took his blank check and he really used it, and, like, he produced something very unique and very much something that represents him. You know, I don't feel a lot of... I mean, there's touches of other sort of influences here, obviously, but I also feel like they're mad over his his tastes and his other influence too. So like I just feel like this represents him really well, like even its problems, you know, I feel like those represent him too as a filmmaker. Just like that he's not infallible, but yet he could still be very entertaining. 
I think it's a case of where we've got a an embarrassment of riches. It's like, you know, the Patriots have been so good for so long that the year that they only make the AFC Championship, Tommy from fucking Southie calls him to NESN and talks about how it's a lost season and he's going to burn all of his Patriot stuff. Like, we've ranked this, like, like an average between the three of us of, like, 3.8 stars. Like, this is the hardest we will be for a nearly four-star movie on any podcast possibly ever. We like this movie. It's just that a lot of the stuff that Nolan usually does, he does worse than usual. But when he's that good, he's still doing it really fucking well. And I also wonder, and this is, you know, going back to our last movie, when we are talking about The Dark Knight, we were talking about how that might have changed the Academy Award game, if you will. Again, talking about how good this movie is. This is the first of his movies that was nominated for Best Picture in a year where there were 10. And let's, let's just play a little game real quick here. Would it have made the cut if there weren't 10, if there were only five nominees that year? I'm going to go through them now. Would the Academy have nominated Inception if there were only five? So the winner that year was The King's Speech. Obviously, that would have been nominated because that won. But also up for that up that year was 127 Hours, Black Swan, The Fighter, also talking about Tommy from South Year, if you know what I mean, Chris, Inception, The Kids Are All Right, The Social Network, Toy Story 3, True Grit, and Winter's Bone. I feel like that's a case of we don't have to nominate 10. Like, why did we nominate that many even? I think it would have had a very strong chance. I think so. I don't think so. I think there's... You don't think so? No, I think there's five movies there that they would nominate above that any year. King's Speech, Social Network. Yeah, Winter's Bone. Black Swan. Uh, kids are all right. That would take the requisite sideways-esque, Juno-esque indie nom. I, mean, I think this would get nominated over True Grit. I think it would go over Toy Story 3. I think it would go over The Fighter. Yeah. I think it would go over 127 Hours. Uh-huh. Maybe. Yeah, so maybe this sneaks in at five. I don't know. Social Network was robbed that year anyway. I just recently watched King's Speech. The movie's not great. I'd say it's in like that three, four, five range. It's not great, but it's also, you know, not it's not bad. Uh, it's, uh, it's telling that we have uh, the Oscars. I mean, granted, the Oscars are trash, but uh, we have lowered ourselves to not bad as as a Best Picture Award winner when we should be aspiring to, to much more. Well, I mean, most movies are just not bad, but, you know, who knows? Okay, so, while I was talking about the Oscars, this was also the last film for a stretch of, like, five or six years to win Best Cinematography shot on film, and then the next one that would win that, I think they have to update this trivia, because La La Land won in 2016 shot on film. But, like, for there's, like, a five or six-year run where film shot digitally won the Best Cinematography, but this is the last for at least a handful of years. It is a beautiful-looking movie. I didn't really sense a lot of IMAX going on in this one, but, yeah, it, it's still gorgeous and grand and he knows how to shoot this. And, I mean, let's just briefly mention the stuff that we haven't mentioned because everybody knows the imagery and it's been utilized frequently since then. I mean, the city folding in on itself, which uh, Doctor Strange adapted and used the rotating hotel, uh, which is a massive advancement of a technique that Wes Craven initially utilized in Nightmare on Elm Street. And was also used in High School Musical 3 in one of the best Zac Efron songs, but keep going. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, How could I forget that? Probably also the Lionel Richie video for Dancing in the Ceiling, now that I think about it. I feel like those are kind of in, like, the film canon for, like, cool visual effects at this point. And maybe we're doing the movie a little bit of a disservice by not going too deep into it, but, like, I feel like everything, all the praise that could be heaped on those have been heaped on it, and it's almost not worth doing at this point, but that action scene in the hotel is downright fantastic, top to bottom. So, like, let's not pretend, you know, when we're talking about a movie that we collectively almost rated four stars, like, there's some of the good stuff that we're just not talking about here because everyone knows about it. 
it. Yeah. Put your tweets down. We don't hate this movie. I think it was really clever of him not to use like New York to fold in on itself or anything like ultra recognizable in film. And even that section of Paris, you know, like the Eiffel Tower is barely in a shot or two of this movie when we're talking when he's walking around France. But just sort of just the artisanship of the buildings and stuff just made it more almost feel just infinitely more complex. And all he had to do was sort of fold it on top of itself. It's just really, really cool. But the hallway scene or the hotel fight, the zero-G battle, uh, if you will steals the movie for me. I just think that's great. I mean, there's just stuff they were able to do in this movie practically, or for the most part practically, because I saw some behind the scenes of them with the huge gimbal rig of like a freaking entire hotel, you know, hallway where Joseph Gordon-Levitt was being like flipped around in it and everything. Like they're doing stuff, you know, years and years after The Matrix without like that extreme type of CGI, you know, I will say like a lot of the, and I think Nolan like kind of would praise himself a little bit on that too, is to say, I try and keep it as practical as possible. And I feel like there was some chatter about that sequence when this film came out being like, yes, this is definitely going to be nominated for, for something along these lines because it is fantastic. Yeah, so most of what this film did visually was practical effects. So like the Penrose stairs, which are the MC Escher stairs, the rotating hallway, the mountain avalanche, and the zero-G sequences, all practical, not CGI. There are still like 500 visual effects shots, which I don't, I didn't have a baseline for. Apparently, big budget, you know, crazy movies can have like 2,000 shots that are CGI or that are visually enhanced or whatever. This has only, question mark, 500, but it's very impressive to me, and I think it's super cool. Like, you're saying, Mike, you know, the behind-the-scenes things of, like, Joseph Gordon-Levitt just falling around the hallway. The fact that they even dared to do that real, like, practically is super cool. Yeah, and I even think, you know, just to wrap that up, like, even just to dare to do that from a storytelling perspective to, you know, to invoke the Matrix, if you will, without even meaning to, though, but, like, just the whole thing, like, they could have gotten, like, way freakier with a lot of, like, the dream stuff, but I'm really glad they didn't. And they even built that in with the whole the subconscious alarm sort of goes off and breaks the dream down and like it knows something is going wrong kind of thing so like i appreciated a lot of that too they kept themselves in check while we're on the topic of scenes that you know do elevate this movie for us one that isn't as much in the kind of nolan canon i really 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 love the acting in the flashback to the hotel room where maul kills herself um, i think dicaprio was fantastic there i think dicaprio is an actor who gets recognized for the wrong movies <laughs> like i think he's been a lot better than he was in the revenant and that's kind of the one that he finally got thrown the oscar for i'm not saying he's as good here but oh yeah like i think one of the best best performances I've seen in the movie in the last like five or ten years I think maybe longer maybe like ten or I don't know whatever anyway he's fantastic in The Wolf of Wall Street like he yeah. is yes yes unbelievably goddamn good in that movie and like I agree like people were like oh my god did you see Shutter Island I'm like who gives a shit about Shutter like that's not like that what like no that's not uh, there are better movies there, there are better movies but I, I still like Shutter Island because I feel like he's really good in it like I, I'm more of a fan of Leo than I even realized myself after rewatching this movie because I like kind of stopped seeing Leo while I was actually picturing Nolan quite a lot to be quite honest like he does look a little bit like Christopher Nolan in this movie but yeah like he can really go there like uh, I mean of course I know Wolf of Wall Street and in this movie but I was I had forgotten that he really stretched his emotional muscle in this 
He just doesn't get to do, like, quiet acting that often. He mostly gets recognized for his louder, screamy stuff. And I, I appreciated him more in this film than I remembered. And him and Mary Cotillard have pretty decent chemistry. She is amazing, though, in this movie. She really is. She is a genuinely threatening presence in a movie where I feel like there's just, there's no threat. I mean, I know that we're told, oh, if you die, you go down to limbo forever, blah, 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 blah. But, like, we spend so much time thinking that they're just safe there. And, like, we don't really give a shit about Ken Watanabe that it just doesn't feel like a threat. So the times when she is on screen, she genuinely feels like a, like a malevolent. A malevolent? Well, yes. But almost like a serial killer in, in this movie. Like she's genuinely threatening and unnerving. She got the old crazy eyes and she's super good at it. And she's a welcome antagonistic presence that in a movie that doesn't really have one. When they're in the, the avalanche scene, the, the snow scene, the snow lodge, whatever that is. And like, she just comes out of nowhere and is like a, essentially a Terminator to kill, you know, Celine Murphy there. She's like, oh no, like what, what? Yeah. And then there's when he's training Ellen Page and she just shows up with the knife and just like runs into her with the knife. Yeah, great visuals. When she's playing with the knife at the dinner table, it's just like, you know, you know what's going to happen and you're just like, oh, fuck. Oh, it's it's still genuinely unnerving and she is the sole source of tension in this movie and without her, it wouldn't have done nearly as well in my opinion. So rightly so, Harper's Bazaar magazine listed her as one of the best film femme fatales. Rightfully so, she got the recognition she deserved. But while we're on the topic of actors in roles that are very good in this movie, apparently Leonardo DiCaprio was Christopher Nolan and his wife Emma Thomas, who's also producing this movie. He was their only choice for the role of Cobb. So I think that you know, I don't, I don't want to say that like they wouldn't have made this movie without him, but they might not have made this movie without him. But for the Mal role, they approached Kate Winslet, and she said no because she could see herself in the role. I think she carries a little too much of that baggage still, Kate and Leo. I don't know if I could have seen them together in this movie again. I mean, Revolutionary Road works fine. I don't know if you could have done this less than another 10 years or however long it was between that and Titanic Apart. Like, you don't need to do the kind of, like, 50s studio guy-girl pairing that used to happen back then. Like, we don't, we don't need that anymore. It feels a little stunt, yeah. stunt-ish at this point. Yeah, I actually quite like Marion Cotillard because of just, you know, she's just not another... She's not the type of person I would expect to show up in a blockbuster, and then we're going to get her... To, she's going to show up in Batman next also, but I quite enjoy, like, all the indie work that I've seen her in and everything. So I think just that, that I wasn't familiar with her as a person or as a presence as an actor by this point, so I was kind of discovering her through the movie and all of, like, her abilities and all of her subtleties and her nuance and stuff, and yeah, she's definitely got some crazy looks in this movie, and that goes way back to, like, what I think Chris, like, brought up, like, first or second episode, or just, like, how Nolan can really get them to do great facial acting. <laughs> like, if some of the, uh, other sort of like vocal acting isn't really working as great for some characters like there's definitely a lot of cool sort of like looks going on here I also think it's fitting that she is in this movie because she played Edith Piaf in La Vie and Rose, and now the Edith Piaf song is so central to this movie. I had seen that movie before I saw this because my parents and my sister really wanted to see it, I think, and so I, I remembered seeing that, and I saw this. I don't know if I equated the two, but yeah, then again, she'll be back in Dark Knight Rises, which we'll get to next week. But there's a lot of, like, casting stuff that, like, a lot, I think a lot of other people that they wanted or that they thought about or something for that role, I don't know, we'll get to that next week. But on the topic of other casting for this, so for the Peter Browning role, the Tom Berenger role, 
role. Don Johnson was Christopher Nolan's first choice, but he turned it oh, down. Okay. I like it. I like that too. It's because it's in the same vein. Like he's going for sort of these like late eighty, early nineties stars. Like these guys were big back in the day. I felt so. It's not quite what Tarantino does when he popular, but it's similar, I guess. That's what I was thinking too. Yeah, Eric Roberts previously. I yeah, I'm I'm super into the casting of Don Johnson, frankly. And I mean, next movie we'll get Matthew Modine, so that's another, you know... Birdie himself. Yeah, Birdie himself also from Funky Monkey. Go check that out on Monkey Club oh, here. You wow. just covered that, didn't you, Chris? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I forgot about that movie immediately. Yep, so there's that. He's got some bleached blonde highlights in that movie, if I'm not mistaken. I think so. So for the Joseph Gordon-Levitt role, James Franco was in talks, but turned it down due to scheduling conflicts. The role of Saito was written exclusively for Ken Watanabe because Christopher Nolan felt that even though he was in Batman Begins, he didn't have enough screen time and wanted to make sure that he had more screen time because I guess he really liked him as an actor and wanted to sort of show him off more. I think he's really good in this movie. Yeah, he's great. I love him. I'm so glad he's part of the Godzilla universe now, too. He was in the 2014 version, and and he's going to be in the next one. And the last bit of casting, the biggest, sort of like the most, I guess, widespread casting call, audition, whatever, was for the Ellen Page role of of Ariadne. That makes a ton of sense. I, I think as good as Ellen Page was, I don't think she was as integral or it was someone who gets first thought casting at this point in her career or ever maybe we, well I mean she'd already done Juno at this point and I guess she was sort of I mean she was known I mean obviously she has to be like a known name to be in this movie there's gonna be crazy stuff in the next and again a little peek behind the curtain here in Oz we're doing this when the Dark Knight Rises both on the same night recording so I feel like I keep referencing other trivia that I know about Dark Knight Rises because I was like oh like if you think this trivia is wacky wait till next time but there's gonna be like crazy things casting stuff next week too but anyway for the role of Ariadne before Ellen Page was offered and accepted, he considered casting Evan Rachel Wood. So shout out to Westworld. Yep. Emily Blunt. My girl, Rachel McAdams. A weird one, but would would have, I think would have worked, although I don't know if she was, how well known she was this time. Emma Roberts. Okay. Jesse Schramm, who I don't know. Doesn't sound familiar. Carrie Mulligan. Oh, okay. okay. And the craziest one, Taylor Swift. <laughs> Whoa, what? <laughs> That's dream casting. Don't know. I also think that she would have done it, probably. I mean, if it didn't interfere with her schedule, if, if he really wanted her for it, like, I think, why would she not? You know what I mean? She was in the Zac Efron movie. Oh, okay. I was about to say she's not an actor, really. She, was a, vo- gonna... she was a voice actor, the Lorax, not really acting, acting. Okay, so two other things. One time, I think we were talking about the prestige, that it's such like a stand-in for filmmaking, right? About the different roles that people play. This one, even more explicitly so, that Christopher Nolan even admitted in an interview that Cobb is the director, Arthur is the producer, Ariadne is the production designer, Ian who is Tom Hardy, is the actor. Saito is the studio. And Fisher, who is Cillian Murphy's character, is the audience. He said, in trying to write a team-based creative process, I write the one I know. Very cool. And he wrote it so much to less effect than he did in The Prestige. Like, none of that, like, sure, maybe, but, like, none of that really is saying anything, though. Tom Hardy as the actor, like, who gives a shit? Like, yeah, that doesn't work at all. I feel like he could have made that work if he was more explicit about it. I mean, but again, there's, I think it gets a little lost in the shuffle and the mix of other ideas and the fact that, yes, it's, there it is, it's, I can call it out for you if you see it, but, like, there's no relevance besides that to it like it would you know like it would have been cool if there was actually deeper meaning to that actual aspect and and there's ground there because like there's the whole thing about how if you fuck with the world too much the subconscious rebels against it and you could have this idea about how if you do interesting and unique things with movies then the the audience turns against it very cabin in the woods-esque so like there's grounds to make metaphors there but he certainly didn't really do it <laughs> like at all if, if that was really what he's going for then i would say that was a 
pretty massive failure on his part. And the only other thing, I don't know if this was intentional or if this is the internet doing its internet thing, but if you take the first letters of the main characters' names, Dom, who is Cobb, which I think only Mal and maybe Michael Caine use that name, but Dom, Robert, Eames, Arthur, Mal, and Saito, they spell the word dreams. And then if you add Peter, Ariadne, and Yusuf, the whole thing makes dreams pay, which is what they do for a mind thief, which cool, I guess. 8888888888. I looked at all the envelopes. I don't even know. A Pepe Sylvia doesn't even work here. <laughs> I'm just looking now at the quotes that I have. You mustn't be afraid to dream a little big, darling. We talked about that already. I didn't even write down, like, cool quotes from this. Like, there's so many, like, as corny as Batman quotes can be, I think they're all still, like, really cool. I think here, it's just spending so much time explaining things that there aren't really times for quips. And I think that we can, you can rightfully, you know, talk down at superhero movies for just being, like, guys in spandex and ladies in spandex punching each other, which is what they are. But at least there, you're able to inject, like, character flavor here it's just like it's it's not the characters aren't as entertaining like you feel like there's an empathy that you feel I think for Cobb's character when he, especially when you know his backstory and know that he is responsible for his wife's death but it just feels like these characters are not as fun as like the characters in a Batman movie or the prestige or anything else I don't even feel like it's for lack of trying either. Like, I feel like there's moments here and there, especially between Tom Hardy and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, which I would have loved to have seen, like, them team up and explored more. But, you know, when they're explaining the kick and he sort of kicks his chair out, or the dream bigger part, I mean, I guess we're going to count. That's the third time we've referenced the same line, so I guess you're right. There really isn't that all that much. But, I mean, I don't know. Part of me also feels like the action and all that other stuff is just secondary. It almost, like, as cool as it is, it kind of feels like it gets in the way a little bit and that they're just you know now we have to sort of cut to an action sequence it doesn't seem like inherently sort of like an action movie and so therefore it doesn't have like those quips or those lines and things like more of the quips come from leo when he's sort of what's her name again ariadne which is also it's the name of king minus's daughter i think he's the one who had in the the tales of myth he had the the minotaur maze like the maze with the minotaur in it so name very specifically chosen for that okay so i feel like you only do that if if you're going to explain it and none of that is I mean that, that, she is the one making the maze and everything but like it's just nobody knows that name it's just a little weird but I guess what I'm getting at is like the one-liners even though they're not one-liners but like what would constitute as a one-liner comes throughout the exposition instead of the punchline for like a, a kill or, or something like that like maybe that's why they're not landing is because they're sort of like not really even there in the first place. And mentioning that reference to the story of the Labyrinth, I feel like that's just kind of a dropped plot point. And, and some of the world building stuff in and of itself is dropped for just kind of rote action sequences and shooting. Like, you couldn't have imagined anything bigger. Because you could just be like, I'm inventing a world that doesn't have guns. Like, there's so much you could have done, right, with Ellen Page. The maze stuff is just dropped because it's just a city and then it's just a hotel and then it's just a fucking level 5-1, the ice world. Like, why not have non-Euclidean geometry? Why not have them drive up the side of a building at some point. Why not have the hotel look like the fucking Winchester house and have stairways that lead to nowhere? Like, you could have done so much more interesting visual stuff with these ideas, and they, it seems like they set them up to do that, and then they just don't? And maybe on rewatching, as I'm noticing all of this, it's kind of detracting from the fact that the movie is just like, it's just like heat, but in a dream, and eh. And I think that's the biggest 
not knock on it, but it is just like a heist film. And it's not like a particularly engaging heist film, I don't think. Like, what they're stealing is cool, and I guess the way that they go about it is cool, but it also feels like there's no tension, like they're always going to do it, because if they mess up, they just go down deeper. And the stakes raise, because they could spend more time there, and you can age more and whatever, but at the same time, I don't feel like, I don't feel the tension that I feel like this movie wants you to feel. Yeah, that's interesting, too, considering how tense it wants you to feel, like between the editing, the music, and all this other stuff but I think for me something that occurred to me is it's all riding on the idea that you want Cobb to get home to his children that like you're on his side and like you think he's a good guy and all this thing and like I'm not entirely sure like he's not that great a guy like he's not really a great guy like I believe you know like what what happened with his wife like he was trying to wake her up from limbo and so he incepted that idea into her mind and she woke up suicidal like that is tragic and terrible and like you know kind of unforgivable and then therefore i'm not sure if i necessarily care 100 percent that he gets home to his kids in the movie you know what i mean like i just wish that i i wish there was something i wish they were all working for something together instead of all of them working to get Cobb home i'm with you that i don't care but i'm with you in the way that like i think it works i think there is some emotion there whereas in a lot of movie there hasn't been People love the ending. People love to debate the top and blah, 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 blah. I don't think it matters. I think it's a more explicit exploration of the theme that Nolan looked at in Memento, where it's like, is ignorance just bliss sometimes? And it doesn't matter for Cobb. Like, he's he's there. And the emotional tug you get and the reaction that you have internally to that is really what matters. It's not if the top is going to fall down or not. And so, yeah, I think that, I think that actually does work for me, but... I'm with you. It That does make it feel like it's Cobb's movie almost entirely when so much of it, like, doesn't really feel like Cobb's movie. I mean, yeah, I guess everyone's going to get, like, a shit zillion dollars from Ken Watanabe or whatever, but for a one last heist kind of thing, the stakes are pretty low. What's also strange, I just realized, I was going to say about how it's not the case, and I realized it is, but we were talking earlier about Ocean's Eleven, and yeah, they're stealing a lot of money, but at the same time, the heist is really about Danny Ocean getting Julia Roberts back, like Clooney getting Julia Roberts back, Danny Ocean getting Tess back, right? So like, it's again this very personal heist, essentially, that also, oh, by the way, everyone's going to get like $12 million or whatever. On the other hand, his name's in the title. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's not, like, this isn't like Cobb's Inception, it's as it is Ocean's Eleven. Like, you know it's all about Danny Ocean, you know it's like his heist, his his story, his whatever. Here, it's sort of like a, a bit of a misdirection in how much, and I think it's a good point, Mike, about how much this is just like his thing. Yeah, and I also feel like at least in, in the Oceans thing, that's a comedy too. So, I mean, it could play a little faster and looser. And Whereas here, it just gets like too dramatic. If you're looking for an action heist film, you're getting a dramatic thriller instead. Yeah. I don't think I have any more notes about Inception. Is there anything else that you guys want to talk about before we uh, close up shop? It's a little bit of a shorter one sandwiched between what I can only imagine going to be two very long Batman episodes. I know Dark Knight was very long. I'm assuming Dark Knight Rises is also going to be long. Anything else that either of you want to say about Inception? Uh, worth watching once for sure. Go into it knowing as little as possible and then you know, leave the memories alone. I think it's worth two watches, to be quite honest, at least, because after the first one... After you sort of are going through this gauntlet of questions, watching it the second time, you're good. Like, you, I feel like you're equipped to watch it like you should the first time, almost, <laughs> in a lot of ways. But, yeah, I, I feel like it's definitely worth a watch. And, and if you do like it, like, definitely check it out again. I think you could, on a second viewing, get a little more out of it. This is actually something I was meaning to say earlier. Like, I think it would be good to watch it a second time. But I was saying to Chris the other day that I don't feel like watching it a second time. Like, I don't feel like the mystery 
movies of this movie necessarily reward a second viewing like they do for the memento or for the prestige i think those sort of hide the story or hide clues that like the second time around you'd be like oh christian bale had a brother the entire time or whatever here you would maybe understand the rules of the world more but i don't think there's like more of the story that you would uncover i think you would just sort of like not have to worry about like oh wait what's going on so i think it, it probably would be good to watch it twice but at the same time i don't know that you necessarily need to or would want to in the way that you would watch his earlier movies if that makes sense Oh, yeah. No, I hear you. I think what I'm getting at is just so that you understand the rules of the game, that you know the law of the world so that you don't have to worry so hard about taking all that in for the first time is very overwhelming or or can be. So I feel like the second time around, you got a good grasp of the situation. You can kind of just sit back and try and enjoy it on sort of like a light, a lighter level, more, more on that action sort of blockbuster level as opposed to sort of the indie thinker level. Yeah. So the bottom line is that we all like this movie a lot, and yet we were very harsh on it just because all of the other movies are better, question mark, or at least more fun, or at least more enjoyable, or we're just in a role of really, really good movies, and we feel like we have to be critical of one thing or another. But for our entire run of Cinemakers, all the episodes we've done so far, and the three that we still have left in this initial run of Christopher Nolan's filmography, you can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Go to cageclub.me slash newsletter, sign up for a newsletter, get the best of the Cage Club podcast network in your inbox on the first of the month every month. Email us, mailbag at cageclub.me. Let us know what you think of the show. Let us know what you think of this movie. Let us know what you think of Christopher Nolan. We will be glad to hear it. We'll read it on the next episode we record after we get the email. So just say hi. We want to hear from you. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Chris Podcasts. And we'll see you next time for The Dark Knight Rises on Sin Makers. Give him the kick! Give him the kick!